welcome to the Digiday Podcast. I'm Kaylee Barber, media editor at Digiday. And I'm Tim Peterson, senior media editor at Digiday. Tim, you had the interview this week with Theron Oliphant, who is the SVP of Data and Technology at Essence. And I'm curious, I know that you guys are going to be talking a lot about clean rooms in this conversation. Why was that topic an important one to discuss for this episode. Yeah. So, I mean, I think at Digital, we've been writing a lot about clean rooms this year. It feels like 2022 was a pretty big year for clean rooms. And, and Theron even calls it kind of a step change year for clean rooms. Um, clean rooms have been around for a bit with respect to like advertising and media, uh, Google, Meta, Amazon each have clean rooms, but they've been um, expanding where advertisers are now having their own clean rooms, publishers, you know, Disney, NBC Universal are having their own clean rooms as well. Um, and a lot of it is because first party data is becoming used more and more for advertising, but with privacy regulations and data leakage concerns, companies want you know some means of ensuring that they're securing that data as much as possible and so clean rooms have become um kind of you know the seemingly the most prevalent method of securing data but then still making it available for advertising related purposes so i know recently google had their announcement around pair and then expectations um for iab's upcoming clean room data standards are uh you know a little up in the air i'm curious you know what uh, Theron was saying about those recent, I guess, impacts to what, you know, is going on with clean rooms and the larger advertising marketplace right now. Yeah. So I think the the Google announcement has gotten a lot of attention because it's um, kind of Google making it easier for advertisers and publishers to use their clean rooms or to, to kind of activate clean rooms for programmatic ad sales. Um, so that is you know, significant in that respect. And so Theron and I get into what the significance of that announcement is. I think there's still a lot of um, information needed around how exactly Pair is going to operate. Um, Theron makes that point. Others that I've talked to have been making that point too of like, okay, this is significant, but we still don't really have all the details on how this is going to work. And then the IB's um, upcoming clean room standards are set to be released in December. And a lot of people have kind of high hopes for that um, because there just is a lack of standards around clean rooms right now, which makes it hard for these clean rooms to be interoperable and really for um, clean rooms to be as useful as they have the potential to be. You need some standardization so that the you know data structure or the structure of data in one clean room um, can kind of fit the structure or be matched against the data from another clean room, especially since companies can be using different clean room providers. And so Theron lays out what his hopes are for those standards that'll be released next month. All right. Well, lots to get into. It sounds like I'll let you guys get into it. Thanks, Tim. Cool. Thanks, Kayla. 
Theron Oliphant, welcome to the Digital Podcast. Thanks for joining us. Thank you so much for having me. Absolutely. So Theron, I wanted to have you on the show because like, it's hard to not be talking about clean rooms right now. We haven't had a episode this year talking about clean rooms and you're one of the people that I turn to as an expert on clean rooms to help me kind of wrap my head around this you know big development um, that's been you know a few years in the making, but it feels like 2022 was a kind of step change year for clean rooms. And so I kind of want to start with something of a 101 conversation that may not be so 101. Like this question of what is a clean room seems deceptively <laughs> simple to answer, but at the same time, I feel like there's a lot of confusion. So how would you describe what a clean room is for folks? First off, thank you for the the accolades. And, and um, you're right. I think 2022 is kind of a step change year um, where Clean rooms became more sophisticated, and I think uh, the user, if not adoption, interest grew. Um, but to answer your question directly, uh, the way that I describe a clean room is essentially any platform that is a resolver of data in some kind of way using some kind of privacy technique that allows a client to obfuscate that data in some way, right? Which is a very broad definition. And the reason why I keep it broad is because there is, like you said, really no one ultimate application of, of that data. It could be that this particular data might be used for advanced analysis or to join data sets together um, so that a brand could understand more attributes about their user or so that they can go to market and activate media against those users. But ultimately, there is a technology that sits in between the first-party data from the brand and some other source of either inventory or analytical tools that will allow that data to be privately utilized in the marketplace. One of the areas where I start to get a little tripped up with clean rooms is, okay, are clean rooms where one company kind of puts their data and it's, you know, somewhat sealed off from everyone else? Or is it, you know, kind of this, you know, vacuum sealed room where two companies go in with their corresponding data sets and they match them there? Because I feel like the latter where it's kind of two companies in one clean room is like the platform model. You know, Meta has a clean room, Google has a clean room, Amazon has a clean room. I feel like that's how those have operated, at least those have been my understanding of that, how those have operated. But now it feels like there's also this trend of companies having their own clean rooms where that clean room is just housing the company's data and isn't where it's being matched with other data sets. Can you help me to understand like which is true or if both are true, how both can be true? Yeah, and, and they, they can. And, and really, if you back out from the, the technical, um, the, the specific technology, if you will, whether it be a platform, whether it be software or whatever, really the differentiation that you're talking about is in the privacy technique itself. So there are, um, in the platform model, um, because you would actually send the data. So 
um, instead of it being on premise in my own um, cloud server or server data lake um, at the brand level, I would instead send that data to the platform and it allows for what we would call um, analysis at at the K anonymized level, right? So what what they would then what that enables is for you to send that data, whether it's hashed or not, that PII um, would go into the platform itself. You can query against it. You can learn things about your client. You may even be able to build audiences and then use them only inside of that platform. But ultimately, that data is walled off, right? So you're right. The platform model allows for the actual sending and sharing of data uh, in a more direct way. But in that case, one company is effectively like owning the clean room. Like if, you know, an advertiser is sending their data off, that means they don't have like the full control of ownership of where that data is being sent to. Is that right? Well, I mean, in in theory, no. Um, but, you know, reputable companies are not sending <laughs> your data anywhere where it's it, where the brand is not asking for it to, we hope. Um, but but yes, in theory, you're correct. Once once it's off property, I mean, you lose control of it, um, essentially. And I feel like that'd be a scary thing for a lot of companies right now, especially those that are more conservative when it comes to data or more wary of data leakage concerns, given GDPR, CCPA, we have CPRA, the California privacy, you know, the amended version of California's privacy law coming up. There was the Sephora um, fine recently for violating California's existing privacy law that, you know, just the, the idea of, okay, step one, companies send your data off that that could be kind of a deal breaker right there for some. For many, right? And and this is why the uh, clean room solutions that use differential privacy popped up. Because okay, big term, differential privacy, what's that? Yeah, so um, the the what you were talking about where there's software um, to transact against the data, but the data doesn't move, right? So thinking about the idea of how can I create a quote unquote representation of that data um, is what these companies do. And they can do it in a bunch of different ways, right? So um, they could add noise into the data set. They could uh, run a uh, filter on top of the data. Uh, There's a bunch of differential privacy techniques. Um, But ultimately, what those techniques allow for is for some level of, um, I'll use the term, dirtying (laughs) of the data. Um, And I actually once wrote a a blog about how um, clean rooms really should be called mud rooms because essentially (laughs) what you're doing is – um, you're, you're messing, you're, you're messing up the data in some way to make it a, a probabilistic set of data, data points. All right. So think about it this way. Um, if, uh, the join keys for the data that you would run a differential privacy technique on, um, have the keys, uh, uh the letters of my name, T-H-E-R-R-A-N, right? Um, what you might run a filter or a differential privacy technique to say is that we want to find anything that has two R's in it, 
first letter T, last letter N in this data set, right? And if those are matches and we have that data on our side, then we'll say that this person has this data, right? So it's a, it's like a, it's a, it's like a really complex probability model. Um, some companies run a bloom filter, others run different types of filters. So like there's all these really interesting models that you can run. And it's basically for like, it's a, it's a, it's a probability algorithmic equation that's run against the data set so that it never has to move. You just query it. If those queries match anything on your side, you then put it in the, in the tranche or pool of data that's associated to that brand. Okay. I'm going to kind of run that back to you to see if I'm understanding how this works. So company A has their data in a clean room. Company B wants to do some sort of you know matching against that data. Instead of company A sending the data out, company B just comes up with this you know, um, kind of, you know, recipe of, you know, the type, what the query is that they want to run. They ask company A, Hey, do you have, can you, can I get your data that has two R's and a T in it? And company A says, yep, here you go. And that data gets sent out or, or just the answer gets sent out. That, like, of, yeah, yeah, I got that. The data doesn't move. The answer moves. And so what you do is you try to find that in the 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 corresponding data set that it's being run against. So you've got basically two separate uh, data sets and you run the query on the same model on both. Do I have T's, double R's, and N's? Do I have T's, double R's, and N's over there? In the middle is the join. So it's like a super complicated version of Go Fish. <laughs> yeah, something like that. In a way. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> And so, like, this differential privacy approach, like, how new is that? Or when did that start to come into the mix with the clean room conversation? I mean, from an arithmetic perspective, it's not especially new. It's new in in the advertising world. And I would say the first company that I heard talking about it was InfoSum. Um, and this would have been back in late 2020, early 2021. Um, and so it's very new to people still. Um, and what before, what preceded that is the third one that I, the third technique that I wanted to talk about, which is data in, data out. So um, this, and this kind of, the reason why I preceded differential, these differential privacy techniques is because it's the similar, it's a similar concept, but utilizing a third party. So here's what I mean. Um, I'm a brand. I've got a set of data. In the middle is going to be some platform that will take that data in, in its, in its raw or semi-raw form, and say, we're going to anonymize this data and then change the key that matches it and de-anonymize it with that new key and then send it off to someone else, right? So they, they may not know, they, they, well, they don't know the PII or anything that gets anonymized. Instead, they just may know the attributes with their own special key. So, so that's another technique that companies use. And this was used a lot in the health space back in the day. Um, so think companies like, 
the Crossixes of the world and, and companies like that that would um, provide services for companies to share sensitive data without ever sharing PII by playing middleman and basically swapping out the 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 answer to the test, if you will, um, with a anonymous um, a key of some sort that would then be used for whatever analysis or targeting or whatever um, that that data would be used for uh, in the marketplace. So last night in preparing for this, you know, I was watching a YouTube video where this um, person from you know Microsoft Research was presenting, and the the name of the session was the definition of differential privacy. I was like, great, this is really going to get me up to speed. Not the case of. of you know, I think five minutes and she starts throwing out equations, five epsilon this, and it started going over my head. But before I got lost, she made the point, and I think she was citing the former CTO of the Federal Trade Commission for this quote, but that there's no such thing as de-anonymized or de-identified. If it's you know, gets anonymized and there's a key and all of that, there's always going to be some way to trace things back. To what extent is that not necessarily true to, to your knowledge? Because I feel like then we're getting on a slippery slope where we're, you start talking about five epsilon this and I'm losing it again. But like if an approach involves de-anonymization, is, does that throw up any red flags for clients given you know this idea? Again, I think it was the former CTO of FTC saying there's no such thing as like de-anonymization. Like it can always be re-anonymized or re uh, re-identified, I guess, would be the term. Yeah. So if you're talking about hashing or algorithmic anonymization, there's there's always a way to, to roll back an equation and figure out, yes. Now, there are levels of difficulty here on a scale that most companies and people just can't get to. Um, but he is technically correct. Yes. Um, but when you're talking about de-anonymization in terms of removing data and having a middleman play like a, a wall, if you will, um, or a lockbox, if you will. So um, these companies – LiveRamp has conscripted this term, the safe haven, but these companies used to be called safe havens, right? Where you would put the data in, they would change it in some way, get rid of the data, like literally like just delete it, and then – push a data set that was re-anonymized with something else back out um, with a match table or match key that they shared with another company. I mean, unless you can figure out how to recover deleted data, in those instances, de-anonymization actually works. So you really, you can't, um, it's really, you have to be clear about the actual enablement or what the technological specificities are um, when you talk about these things. Because I oftentimes people will throw around these terms and then, you know, find out, well, I was kind of talking about that, but I, but it was actually something slightly different than what I was, the way I was thinking about it. So you have to be able to break it down in that way. And my guess is without knowing what this man was, was discussing, that uh, he was talking about algorithmic de-anonymization or hashing or salting or any of those terms that you hear where people say, oh, we de-anonymized it with, with, a, with a SHA-256 hash. Well, that's great. Um, but that can always, yeah, you, you're right. It's very difficult, but you can always 
go back in time, if you will, you know, do your your best Michael J. Fox back to the future and kind of figure out what that data actually was. We started off this conversation, what is a clean room? And we very quickly got to talking about SHA-256 encryption <laughs> methods. When it comes to like meeting with clients, with, you know, brands and talking to them about clean rooms, like who generally on the brand side is involved in that? And to what extent does the someone at the CMO level get involved? Because I'm, it feels like you have to have a certain technical literacy aptitude to really be having these conversations to be making the decisions around, you know, not only whether to adopt a clean room, but what kind of clean room to be adopting. Yeah, I'll start with the end. I think CMOs are involved occasionally. I wish they were involved more. Um, I do believe that there is a need for um, increased technical literacy at the top of these organizations because marketing is getting very complex and it's just a necessity. Uh, they're involved sometimes, but typically um, we're working with we're working with like the the marketing engineers, media tech, um, maybe some of the media focused clients um, at the brand side um, and like their ad tech team. Um, I'm kind of forgetting the first part of the question. And I, I imagine like the, the general counsel or the legal teams in there at, at some, like, because a lot yeah. of this like data governance becomes a big part of this. Yeah. You know, the contracting process is, is, is pretty difficult. Um, especially when you're talking about multiple entities having to interact, right? So if you think about even, what we're talking about when you ask me what is a clean room, um, you're already talking about in some of these interactions at least three organizations who are in some way having either access to the data or a representation of the data. And so the the legalese, I mean, you get into trilateral contracts and four-level contracts. Um, I mean, it's, it, it gets to be um, – uh, fairly complex so that yes they are involved then you've got a privacy team that's often involved saying this is what this is the data we can and cannot share these are the attributes you know even getting down to the attribute level of okay well we'll send you this data schema not that one because this has an attribute on it we don't want to share with anybody even if it's anonymized right or even if it's just differential privacy um and then you've got Oftentimes, a data team at the client. So the client usually has someone who manages their data warehouse, their data lake, uh, their cloud service, whatever whatever it is they use to like house their data. So we have to also interact with, with those groups of people as well. We're going to take a quick break to hear from our sponsor, and we will be right back. And I imagine these are like big enterprise deals that it's it's not something we're like okay we can you know do a deal with this you know company for our clean room and then in a few months we'll see and maybe we change it up but i also don't know to what extent like it's you have as a brand you have one clean room provider and that's it versus supporting a bunch of different clean room providers in the way that a brand would be using multiple demand side platforms to do their programmatic buys yeah um just given the complexity of it it's 
more than most likely what you'll have is clients who work with platforms. So they'll work with a platform clean room or multiple platform clean rooms. So um, like the Facebook clean room, the Amazon marketing cloud, uh, Google's clean room, whatever, one of those platforms or multiples of those platforms. And then they'll have also an open ecosystem uh, clean room that they'll work with because the platform clean rooms are obviously like very good and uh, high quality with their own inventory and their own metrics. Um, but they often don't really interoperate well with the open ecosystem. Now, there are some changes happening in that space, but um, ultimately that or originally that's how the, the ecosystem has been designed. Okay. Yeah. Cause that we had our um, publishing summit back in March in Vail. And there was someone, I think it was from Publishers Clearing House who was on stage and was just like, look, we're staring down this potential where we're going to have to be supporting 700 different clean rooms. And I'm just not here for that. And, um, you know, wrote a piece about that and how, like, cause a lot of other publishers were fretting over the idea of how many clean rooms are they going to have to support? What's going to be the return on that? How much you know costs are going to be involved to support many different clean rooms? Had some clean room providers reach out after that and just like, what are they talking about? Like, it's not going to be 700 different clean rooms. There's like, you know, a handful of us. It's like, you know, Habu, Infosome, Snowflake, you know, on down the line. But I think it was, you know, less about, you know, the publisher argument wasn't, oh, we're going to have to, you know, support different clean room providers, but that, you know, brand one will have a clean room, brand two will have a clean room. And maybe even within those clean rooms, they may have different clean rooms that they're supporting and kind of, that it all, you know, goes to what you just mentioned, this you know, interoperability consideration of how interoperable are these clean rooms? And it seems like the answer at the moment is not very, but what is the answer? You're the, you're the expert, obviously, more so than I am. It's, it's pretty nuanced. So um, there are solutions, like if you even take what Ahabu is doing, right? Like they're kind of the promise of, hey, we can – stitch together these cloud services and you can transact against them in our UI, right? Um, and I think that's a very relevant service. And you're right. I'd love to see the entire industry go to the next step, which is there needs to be a way to um, – because ultimately, like, if we back up, right, what are we trying to do? Like, let's just not just think about like, wait, what are what are the things that we can, you know, contemplate and create from a technical perspective? But like, what are we actually trying to do? Right. So if we're trying to find the most inventory so that we can transact against our first party or so we can find our first party users in market. Right. Well, if if clean room A, we won't use brand names, we'll say clean room A and clean room B. If clean room A has. 10 publishers, um, and they intersect five of those publishers with Clean Room B, but Clean Room B has 15 publishers. So you know there's going to be some additional audience I can gain access to. And match rates being what they are in the industry and having to find people in market in the bid stream and yada, yada, so on and so forth. All of the waterfall of match rate loss that ends up happening, Right. I want the best opportunity to find my consumer. <laughs> so ultimately, I want to be able to tie together 
the value that each of these different clean rooms brings from an inventory perspective and also from a matching perspective. So there's the initial match and then there's the inventory that they have access to. If I, The more that I have, the better opportunity I have to find the entirety of my audience set. That is important. So there needs to be some way to tie that that piece together where I can access that matching solution, this matching solution, and and the correlating inventory that they have access to. And on that point, like to what extent is there a minimum threshold of data that companies, whether it's you know on the buy side or the sell side, need in order to be using clean rooms? Because it feels like you know, clean rooms, I think in the advertising context, it was Meta, Google, and Amazon that were kind of like the early examples of clean rooms in the industry. And it's just, oh, sure, they have, you know, loads of data. So it makes sense that they would have a clean room. But it also kind of set, at least in you know my mind, oh, you kind of need that level, that magnitude of data in order for a clean room. And so if, you know, you're just, you know, a publisher where maybe you have a few hundred thousand email addresses does like, do you really qualify for a clean room or is that not going to really make sense? What is the answer? To what extent is an answer coming into focus in terms of minimum data thresholds for clean rooms for brands and then for media companies? Yeah. um, That's a, that's a really good question. And you have, you have to look at it in two ways. So you mentioned the first iterations of clean rooms, right? The first iterations of clean rooms were really just for measurement. Like, so if you really think about it, ADH, the, it was a, it was a pixel based measurement tool. You would go to your floodlights and you would pull a bunch of the uh, custom variables from your floodlights and a data scientist would run a query against that. So you could measure event level data um, inside of ADH. Facebook was FBAA, right? That's how they started. Facebook Advanced Analysis. That was the first thing that that, that it was in their clean room. So the, the, from a volume perspective of IDs or, or PII, um, it didn't really matter at first, right? Because like what we were doing was just measuring the event level data and then extrapolating that onto the entirety of a data set or to an ad buy or whatever, right? It was just, it was information as opposed to building up an audience pool. Um, And so there's that side of it. The second side of it is more directly to your question. um, Yes, you absolutely need uh, a certain amount of data, but this is actually one of the values that agencies bring, right? Because as a data aggregator, if you will, um, you know, our company choreographs got synthetic data. We've got, we've built up data models. Um, we have geo based data. We can actually help build up your data set. So using a first party data set as a seed audience, right. And then turning that data set into a larger audience that can be utilized. So that's another way that clean rooms can be used. So you don't have to just put the data in and then go activate just against that data. You can put it in. We can transact against it, build a bigger pool, amplify it, and then put it out into the marketplace so that I can be transacted against. Um, that is a that is a great way, I think, to use clean rooms. And 
um, companies like ours are doing that today, right? We are we're we're adding value in that way for companies that are are less data rich, right? Or or data poor, as some of my colleagues like to say. Um, but yeah, and then finally, I'll say yes. I mean, the the data poor, it's very difficult. <laughs> to utilize that data in market. As I was talking about, there's that match rate and there's the waterfall and there's everything else associated to that. Um, now, luckily with first-party data matching, it's a, it's a lot better than cookie-based data matching. Um, but the value of a 200,000 person pool of users to just go straight to market with is not great. So you do have to do some of those other things to add value to it, whether it be analyze the audience build an understanding about it and then apply that to your targeting in platform or to work with a company like ours and amplify that data and build it up. Got it. Okay. Kind of on this note of like, you know, to what extent are, you know, clean rooms applicable for certain types of companies? It feels like, so Google recently had the announcement of Pair, which is like kind of a clean room program that it seems, I, I don't think there's like much, um, technical information out there around how it's going to work, at least based on the people that I've talked to in this space. They're just like, yeah, we're waiting for details to better understand this. But it seems like the significance here is Google's going to help to serve as kind of like an intermediary to help advertisers and publishers kind of apply their clean rooms for programmatic advertising purposes to you know buy, sell, you know, targeted ads online. Um, and so it's like, clean room on rails is how I've kind of come to be thinking about it. There was someone I was talking to who was just like, yeah, this is kind of like, you know, when Apple launched the app store and it made it a lot easier for folks to be able to download and use apps on their phone. Theron, to your mind, what's the significance of Google's pair announcement? From a technical perspective, um, I would say it, it reduces the necessary uh, elements that are usually required to enable a clean room, right? So you need a CD. You, uh, often you need a CDP. You might need a cloud service, data warehouse, data lake. You might need all these different things. But brands have been onboarding data forever, right? They've been sending it to DataLogics or sending it to LiveRamp or whatever to onboard it um, for 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 like cookie based onboarding, right? So cookie syncs. Um, this is more akin to that. It takes what I, what I would say is it simplifies for the brand the the all of the necessary elements, the things that are like making people's heads spin about the advanced marketing solution environment that exists today and it streamlines it. I have a DV360 seat, I can send my data to that DV360 seat or um a cloud service that's connected to it, better better yet, where the, my clean room of choice or a clean room can then uh, actually tie a, a, a durable identifier to that to that data in one of their privacy technique ways, and the access to the to the entire DV three sixty ecosystem is available to me. That's basically the way I see it. It could be, it could turn out to be something else. But, but what the, if I would say the, the other valuable piece to this is, um, 
is it represents a level of interoperability like we were just talking about between platforms and the open ecosystem. So in the announcement, Google said, hey, like, we're not limiting the SSPs. That, to me, was the key of the, to the announcement and because what it does is it opens up the inventory landscape. And that is very, very important to drive adoption. So that streamlining and the inventory, that is very important to open up adoption. Some of the, 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 I, I agree with my colleagues that some of the finer points of the integrations and whatnot have not been um, put out there. I'm sure that eventually what will happen is we will see um, some, you know, some developer and requirements that are that are necessary for developers uh, that comes out at some time, and then we'll figure out how to connect all of these these various entities. But but ultimately, um, so many people use DV three, and those are the the three that they announced: uh, Live Ramp, uh, Infosum, and Snowflake. Was it Snowflake? Um, I think it was Snowflake. Yeah. Uh, oh yeah, Infosum, Live Ramp, and Habu. Those are the three. But regardless, the the three that they announced are all reputable clean rooms that many brands are in contracts with right now. So if you have a contract for for one of these clean rooms, it's even faster enablement. And so, like, given significance of like DV three hundred and sixty as part of this, Google's DSP as part of this, do you see this as something of a precedent or a model for? Other companies with DSPs, whether it's Amazon, Roku, you know, Microsoft, or or even you know the Trade Desk doing their versions of Pair. I'm not sure. Um, I think some companies might. If I take it to if I at a macro level, if I just think about enablement, my thought process about enablement of first party data is centered around two imperatives for brands. Number one is they want to protect their data. So regardless, they're not really excited about sending PII, whether hashed or not, to any company, um, regardless of who they are. Um, And they're looking for on-premise solutions, or they're looking for third-party solutions that are companies that don't transact against that data in any other way other than to be an enabler or resolution um, company, uh, that sort of thing, right? So the value of having, like I was talking about those trilateral relationships is really exactly that, right? Like, so if I'm even just say a publisher, a big publisher with a clean room, right? Say I'm Disney, um, I'm facing resistance from brands who might say, what's to stop you from building audiences off of my data, right? Um, Once I give it to you, there's nothing to stop you from doing that. So number one, I think from a standpoint of just creating that level of security, because these companies focus on security as much as they do privacy, but also keeping disintermediating the use of the data from the resolution of the data. That's very important here. Um, so that's, that's like, that's thing one. 
Thing two that brands want from these providers is they want the capability to have have access to the inventory in a way that's customized to them, right? So if I go to any DSP, if I go to the trade desk or I go to Media Math or any other of the others, um, I'm I can maybe create a PMP. I can build audiences off of their data marketplace. I can send them my first party data, but I don't really usually want to as a brand. Um, so I, I'm not really getting a bunch of differentiation. But if I'm allowed to stick this intermediary in the middle that gives me a lot of like that safety and security and privacy focus that I was talking about just a minute ago, but then also enables me some sort of a, a like type of customization on top of the automated tool sets that those companies offer and provide that those two things coming together is like, is super important. So if I think about, do they want to do this? Probably, right? Like <laughs> my, my thought, my thought is, is that they know this just as much as I do. And, um, and, and I don't have any secrets. So I, I think that, yeah, I, I, my guess is a lot of them will want to do it. Um, will they have, the ability to um, will be another thing. Um, I don't know who has the wherewithal and the capability to set this up. Now, companies like the Trade Desk, maybe, and, and some others, but uh, these are non these are <laughs> these are non trivial integrations, right? Like, if, so you start thinking about um, the necessary elements that are associated to creating the capability to do this in a privacy safe way is um you know when you're connecting platform to platform it's 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 really it's i mean it's something we've done for a long time but um with the added element of uh true anonymization so what we've done for a long time is we've 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 joined data sets right so you hear people say data joins is like you know that's a a buzzword in the industry but it's a reality because ultimately you have to take two disparate sets of data with different schemas and figure out how to join those data sets across um the 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 various cuts of data of that data that you might be interested in Got it. And on that point, um, and I kind of want to, you know, end with this. So in December, the IAB is going to release a draft of standards for clean rooms. It feels like this is, this kind of gets at that interoperability issue. A lot of people have been waiting for standards to come out around clean rooms. Um, what do you see as the significance of like when those standards will be available, what that will mean or enable? And what are your expectations for what those standards will be or what you hope them to cover? Well, first off, I hope it makes it a lot easier for us to to do this, right? Right now, sure. it's, just, it's just really difficult, right? Every, every time we do it, it feels custom. And so what I hope these standards do is allow us to automate some of the things that are required. So let me be more clear. Um, thinking about what are the uh, attributes that are associated with a clean room integration. Is it just an email? Is it an email and a name? Is it an email and a name and an address? Is it a phone number? What are the things that we need, right? So what are those 
connective tissue elements, those things that we will join the data upon, the keys, if you will. Um, so having an understanding of what those are. And then um, the other thing that I would like to see is standards for the cloud services themselves. So the GCPs and the Azures and the AWSs um, w- to have an understanding of e- exactly the the throughput needs, the um, what are the, the the connections that are necessary to the, and the and the and the integration elements to make this work. What what are the the applications that we can put on top of it and not um, the basically the interface, right? What is what is the 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 integration interface look like? And I don't mean like a GUI, like I mean like literally the the actual technical application that we will apply to each one of these integrations. Like I would love to know what are the um the the necessities associated with that because we find that when we're trying to do a platform to platform integration that those become um those mappings become uh like I said, customized each time. And that is not really good for anybody. It just takes time. You got to figure it all out. You're, you're, you're rewriting, um, you know, you're getting some engineer to write code for you um, once you figured out the requirements and it's just, it's a lot. So what I would love to do is see them streamline the process through, through, through those very simple things, right? Which is like, what are the, what are the keys that are necessary and what are the, how do you set up an integration? What are the, the, the things that, the, elements that are necessary for an integration and what does that look like like a spec right <laughs> we 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 really love these but i mean it it really comes down to that it's like what is the the spec if you will for connecting these platforms and how confident are you that the standards will cover those things i think it's going to be tough right cuz 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 if you think about these cleanrooms all came up completely independently hmm. So you got some sitting on AWS. You've got some sitting on all three. You've got some with inter- like user interfaces. You've got others that you just code straight straight into them. Um, it, it's gonna be it's gonna be difficult, I think. Um, and all of the specifications of each are, at least from what I've seen so far, are pretty different. Um, now, is it impossible? No. But I do think the what's often the truth is the difficulty of it will be the human element, right? Like, like the the tech the technology. If you had somebody who was like you know dictatorial and just said this is what it's going to be, um, you could actually make that work. But you've got someone who says, "Well, I like it this way. I like it that way," and 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 um, you've got to get people to kind of agree on the finer points, and it's going to be the 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 people based needs that um, end up driving the difficulty of adoption there human element always making things just a little bit messier (laughs) yes yes uh we we make things more beautiful but we also add complexity right Um, (laughs) awesome all right theron oliphant thanks for coming on the show always enjoy talking with you thanks for having me it's always a pleasure um call me anytime And thank you for listening to the Digiday Podcast. Please don't forget to share this episode with someone who you think would enjoy it. You can even rate us on Apple Podcasts if you like. We'll be back next week with another episode.